Welcome to ContenderCast, a global leadership and consumer industries entrepreneurship podcast centered on shining a light on bright ideas. And now, here's your host, Justin Hahnemann. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for downloading. It's Justin Hahnemann on the ContenderCast for shining a light on bright ideas. Today, you guys are going to absolutely love my guest. He's so amazing. He's got just an unbelievable background and some incredible stories, you know, moving from big company into the entrepreneur space, having huge success in the entrepreneur space. And we're going to talk about his newest venture, um, Forager, today. But on the podcast is David Stone. David, it is so great to have you here. Oh, Justin, that's such a kind and thoughtful introduction. <laughs> I, I hope, I hope I can live up to the excitement and billing you've Dude. given me, and don't uh, disappoint your listeners here. But that's great. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh! I mean, like you have such great experience to share with our audience, and like, I'm, I mean, and I love some of the successes you've had. I'm so excited to hear about some of those and unpack that um, and, and talk about Forager. For those who don't know Forager, um, you're going to really think this is a pretty cool idea. And they're an early stage startup with a social mission of making locally sourced food more available um, to all. And we're going to dive into that. It's just an unbelievable story. So let's start with this, David. So I did my homework on you, as, as I shared before we hit record. And... Um, you haven't you haven't always been in the entrepreneur space, but you've been hugely successful in it. You started your career though at American Express in IT. Like you're an IT guy. So how did you go from that into deciding, you know, I'm gonna dip my toe in and then grow in the entrepreneur space? Well, I, I spent fourteen years essentially in my uh you know professional I actually worked for the US government. Wow for that in the foreign service, believe it or not, in Germany. That's a story for another day. Actually, was you know, my passion when I was younger was to make you know to change the world. So maybe I, I come love back that. to my roots and give back to you know the world and, and help you know America be more widely respected in the world back you know in the in the 80, early eighties. Wow. But anyway, uh, you know, I spent fourteen years at American Express. It was a great run. Um, it was a great place to kind of grow and learn and become an executive. Um, part of my time, I. Uh, you know, I moved my family to Hong Kong, and uh, I had a one-and-a-half-year-old and a 10-day-old wow. um, to work for American Express, and um, you know, managed uh, 33 countries from you know the subcontinent down to Australia. Um, so you know, I've always been a bit of an adventurer, uh, I guess. And even at American Express, you know, um, I think they had, they had some nicknames for me. Um, which <laughs> the <second laughs> what, were, what were the nicknames? Uh, well, they, they, one of my bosses said, you know, you want something done, you know, David will break through, David will go around walls, so break through them. Um, you know, they had other names like, you know, <laughs> you, you want someone to think out of the box, go see David. Um, so, uh, you know, I was always an entrepreneur and I helped America create some new products from America's first, but, you know, uh, been written about and with Tom Peters books, and I went to Asia Pacific. You know, in the early days when you know credit cards weren't really a big thing out there, and sure. I was a pioneer out there. But um, you know, as I as I as I, I actually started in strategy and marketing, and eventually went into IT because I don't like to use the word IT because you know it's sort of dated. But I I, I wanted to get into you know into tech because I felt it was going to be defining. Uh, you know, mode or a defining methodology for kind of the next generations. And sure. Then, you know, 
and we weren't so we weren't so tech, uh, uh, you know, uh, tech drunk or tech, uh, you know, uh, in love in those days. <laughs> you know, tech was more of a back backroom thing. There was no internet when I started on right. Express, right? There were no PCs. There were no laptops. Um, you know, if I ramble on, just feel free to like interrupt me. No, please. I love you know, it. We, uh, I work. I work. I work for Harvard Business. My first boss was a Harvard Business School guy, and you know, we wrote our business plans uh, on a typewriter with uh, with uh, you know flowchart uh, uh, templates where you have to you know. Catch <laughs> out arrows and charts. So nice. different world. But I got interested in tech. Got interested in tech, and you know, I just began to see the writing on the wall that um, that you know we were really you know just like many of the other kind of key revolutions um, that you know made significant change, whether it was electricity or light or railroads or whatever. You know, you've heard all those stories. Sure. So I just felt you know that that tech, as broad as it is. Uh, was really going to become more fundamental. So I switched from being kind of a GM, head of marketing, to IT later in my career. And that's kind of when I got the bug. And even before that, I, I always, everything I always did at that company, primarily in the product realm, was actually a technologically-based solution. Exactly. Um, and wow. you know, I just fell in love with the, you know, the sort of the enabling innovation around technology. And again, just one or two real small examples, you know, two of the things I worked on, uh, when I was in Asia Pacific, I, I led kind of the, the you know the the effort to take point of sale systems into Japan for wow. credit cards. I mean, I know that's on dated, but didn't used to be those. That's right. They used to, they used to <laughs> in Japan. They used to collect the they used to collect the receipts, right, and then put them in a shoebox and send them into you. Oh my right? gosh. And people, in the, people in India would. People in India would like, you know, key them in. <laughs> Some <laughs> people listening to this are like, what do you mean there was no like credit card reader or a place to pay with Apple Pay? Yeah, I don't understand. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so I got the bug. I was there for about 14 years and then I, you know, I, it was enough. I was, you know, I, I was, because I was a little bit of a, you know, it was fine when I was a junior executive being kind of pushing the envelope and being that guy that always tried things and shot his mouth off and challenged authority. It was fine. But once I got to be a, like an executive, a real vice president, you know, it was less about innovation and more about kind of getting in line and supporting everybody. And it just wasn't a good fit for me anymore. Sure. So I began to realize. So, so, uh, uh, you know, I did actually work for one other large company. Uh, I moved my family to Chicago. It was a mistake. It was a big giant insurance company. It was a big wow. job. Why was it a mistake? Vice president, car in the, car, well, you know, I actually got offered a job to work for a startup, um, and I just wasn't, I, I guess I just wasn't ready yet. Um, so I went and moved my family to Chicago. It was a big, old-fashioned, you know, multi-billion dollar insurance company. Slow mover, and, uh, old school. And they, and they wanted to bring me in to, you know, kind of innovate and change, you know, disrupt the, the agency network and, you know, Basically, as one of the one of the other senior guys, and I had a car in the garage and a country club membership, and I was like you know, thirty, like thirty four years old, thirty five <laughs> years old, and I was like, wow, two hundred thousand dollars a year, which doesn't sound like a lot now, but then it was, you know, it's like you know, like a million and a half bucks, yeah, right. Uh, well, it was stupid. It was a mistake. And as a, as a uh, one of the other executives said to me, you know, after I was there for about three or four months and started to get really frustrated, um, he said, you know, the truth of it is, David, um, you know. You know, like a, they hired you like a Maserati. They only want to take you out on a Sunday and show you off, and then they never want you to do anything. Wow. <laughs> wow. So, so, so I only lasted there nine months. Literally wow. lasted there nine months. That was it. 
Um, and I had lots of opportunities and I got headhunted to come move back to Massachusetts and work for a internet startup in 1996. Wow. Um, when, that's when know, the most internet was just getting going then. Most people didn't know what it was. Um, it was dial up modems and baud rates. I don't know how old you are, you know. <laughs> I remember sounds, the sounds. Yes. Know. I used to and I, I remember going, I, I remember going to somebody's, I remember going to a good friend's house, showing them what I was doing and they were like, they were, we were waiting for the pages to load from the dial-up, and my yes. friend's like, "Yeah, what is this crap?" You know. <laughs> and, and I remember going to American <laughs> Express, back to American Express, to try to get them interested, and they we couldn't even get on the internet on uh, American Express, but we gave up. So crazy. So uh, you know, I got smitten. I got smitten. Um, and uh, you know, even though the startup wasn't successful, it was a paid search model. Um, you know, before you know, before there were real, really good search engines. Um, you know, it was, I was smitten on, I just, it was, you know, it was a, it was a big cut in salary. I didn't care. Uh, you know, it was, it was basically, you know, like, you know, go, go, going to pick, pick up basketball on a basketball court. You know, I, I just loved it. Wow. Um, that's awesome. Um, so I was smitten. Uh, however, it didn't work out. Um, the company didn't make it. Um, you know, I worked with some brilliant people, amazing people, tech people, um, and I didn't make it and I had a family at that point. I think I had three kids. Um, so, uh, I sold my soul again to a big corporation oh, <laughs> and moved to Maine. Nice. Um, um, because I thought I needed to pay my family. And I lasted there about two years, a big, big, big job, really right. big company, <laughs> Unum. Put, the, yeah. put the company on there. And then I, and then I, and then I, and then, you know, the company went to a big merger and they bought out a lot of our, our senior executives and suddenly I had two years of pay. Like, what am I going to do with myself? So I tried to do a startup here in Maine in 2000 and everybody said it was impossible. There's not enough capital, not enough talent, not enough this, not enough that, you know, forget it, forget it. I, I probably got 50 people told me, don't waste my time. So essentially I worked away for eight years. Um, and, it, and by the end of the eight years, I had had five kids. So I, bet, I literally worked I literally worked in Boston twice. I commuted. To, I ran a joint venture in the UK in Manchester, and I commuted to Western Australia wow. um, when I helped a friend try to do a two hundred million dollar turnaround for a, a you know a big tech infrastructure company. Um, and I lived on the airplanes for, sure. for literally <laughs> six weeks at a time, right. um, and left Gosh. my family. Um, well, but while I was doing all of that, I kept saying to myself, eventually, I'm gonna you know, create a startup in Maine uh, and prove, you know, these folks wrong. I mean, that's kind of the way my life has been is kind of not accepting the status quo and sure. sort of, you know, getting the fight in me and saying, you know, you know, God damn it, I'm, I'm going to prove these folks wrong and, and, and really make this happen. And it's been that way, you know, humbly throughout my career. Um, and a lot of examples of that. So, uh, so on that journey of eight years of working away, I did work for a venture capitalist as an entrepreneur resident. Um, I did get a company started that the Boston Red Sox funded in the sports loyalty space. That's cool. Yeah. Um, again, there's a long, long journey of different things. Um, but eventually, uh, the stars aligned and I was able to start uh, cash start here in, in Portland, Maine and, uh, in 2007, right before. Uh, the Great Recession. Right. Um, Great and the timing. Company was was built, <laughs> and the company and people forget. I mean, we that we we you know stores were closed up, restaurants were boarded up. It was a tough time up here and everywhere. Um, and you know the company uh, was a huge success. Um, wow. You know, and I'm very grateful for 
um, you know, the, the, the investors that invested in us and the, the people that helped me, you, know, you can't, you can't do it alone. It's sure. not a cult of personality, one person, right? The, the, the great people that helped me make this company, you know, a huge success and take, you know, the hundred billion dollar physical gift card industry and, you know, catalyze it, becoming a digital currency and having great clients like Starbucks and Lululemon and Home Depot and Best Buy and Gap and on and on and on. Uh, you know, we ran their digital gifting experiences for over 300 top brands and 150 mobile sites and anybody that wanted to send a digital gift, you know, a easy amazing. gift card through any major retailer or, you know, 80% of them were run by, by cash. Yeah, sure. and yep. The company sold, a bunch of people made a lot of money. My investors made more <laughs> than anybody naturally. Um, but wait, and, uh, on, wait. You know, I got a question on that one though. You, I don't want to roll past that because it's such a huge success for you, but how did you decide I'm going to start a company and it's going to be focused on gift cards. Like, how did you even decide that? I mean, I get it's your background had some finance involved, but why, why that space? Yeah, it was somewhat serendipitous. Uh, and, you know, uh, who knows if it's serendipity, divine fortune, or, or some kind of foresight. But uh, two things. One is early in my career, I actually created the American Post gift check. Believe it or not, um, got it. Okay, I worked in the traveler's check world as a product manager. You probably are too young to remember traveler's check. <laughs> no, I remember um, them when but, we when our family would travel. We would have to before, have traveler's checks. Right. Well, before yeah. credit card, before credit cards, that was what you did, right? Um, so I was a product manager in that group, and my job was to come up with new services. And my, you know, I was like twenty four years old or something. So you know, one of the focus groups, people said, "Oh, we'd love to give the gifts to travel." And uh, I said, "Hmm, there's something there." There. Um, so we took the Travel Check product platform and we, you know, we spruced it up, made it gold, made it look nice, personalized, included the card, and I, you know, yeah, I, I, they, they, you know, the company funded me as an entrepreneur, gave me five million bucks, which was a lot in those wow. days, and wow. lo and behold, we created a whole new, you know, the second kind of international currency, you know, sure. that in the world that existed, and the company again, it, it became very successful. They moved me out because they always saw me as a, so so there was that. And then the, the, my co-founder, and that's another story, maybe for another podcast. Sure. I'll have to be careful with this one. <laughs> uh, he is the founder of a company called Coupons.com, um, which went public, oh, I don't know how many years ago, for $1.6 billion. Um, <laughs> so he and I met, um, and he had a vision for taking coupons and making them into a payment uh, form. And initially, we were going to try to create the the first online to offline currency. So this is the day before mobile. You know, you could sure, pay by a mobile absolutely, phone. Absolutely, was, you, you could only use you could only use PayPal in the virtual world or the digital world, and you could only use credit cards in the physical world. So there was no offline to online currency. In other words, you couldn't send somebody monetary value over the internet, right. And then have them use it in the physical world. So we started as a much bigger idea, like a PayPal type concept. Um, and the hedge fund guy that invested in us, you know, wanted us to do it. And then when the recession hit, you know, about four months after he gave me $3 million without a business plan or anything, um, <laughs> I said, to, I said, look guys, you know, if you, you know, PayPal invested $200 million and that was in 2001 to get to where they are today, if you guys want to continue this, you're going to have to put up a lot of money. And they said, no, we don't have that. You know, so I said, well, let's tilt it to gift cards because. You know, that's a narrower market, so huge, totally. and it's all physical. And I believe, I believe that, you know, the digital age is coming. Um, but, you know, other than that hedge fund guy, I couldn't get anybody to fund me. 
because everybody wow. thought I was crazy. So they said, wow. no, nobody will ever send a, a physical gift over the internet. No one will ever send money over the internet. It's not safe. It's not secure. Nobody will ever do it. Well, we get to a billion dollars uh, through, the, through our platform. So, so anyway, it was a great run. I learned a lot. Um, biggest, most successful software tech exit in the history of the state of Maine. Created a lot of jobs. Brought in fifty million dollars of capital for the state. You know, I was a you know I was a golden boy for a while until I wasn't. Right? <laughs> Why do you say that? <laughs> what do you mean? Tell you weren't? <laughs> uh, you know, it's probably a podcast for another day. Um, <laughs> it's the classic founder versus you know private equity VC story. Oh, oh I'll, I'll, gosh. I'll, I'll, I'm going to tread lightly on that one, Justin. If you ever want to do a podcast on founders and you know. Uh, why they don't typically always last. That's a whole other Heck story. yeah. Everyone listening everyone listening's like, Justin, have, get that one scheduled. <laughs> uh, uh, so uh, there's a lot, of, you know, there's a lot of that. So I spent five and a half years, you know, building the company from zero to, you know, uh, on its way to a billion dollars in, in, in volume through the, through the plat- gifting, digital gifting volume through the platform. Um, and, you know, I was burnt. I mean, I'm the yeah. kind of person, you know, right or wrong, that gives himself or herself or themselves uh, to, you know, whatever I'm doing, uh, you know, 200%, probably to, to a fault. Um, and I tend to, you know, humbly, I tend to, my vision keeps expanding. I hate the word vision, but my kind of view of, of where this where this product or this opportunity can go gets bigger and more expansive. Sure. Which is a good thing and a bad thing for an entrepreneur. And I, and I talk, I mentor about this, right? <laughs> because, you know, you, you got to be careful of kind of your hubris and what you wish for. And, you know, you know, you know, the, the Facebook, Uber, you know, all of these analogies that are out there. Obviously, Castell wasn't those. We were in our own right, but, but, but you just got to be careful. So, you know, if I was really wanted to be selfish and just try to put money in my pocket, I would have probably tried to, you know, scale it back and get the company sold. I had offers along the way, and I would have made myself a lot of money. But I that wasn't that wasn't what it was about for me. It was really about helping change the world, putting Maine on the map as a startup community, a vibrant startup community, and you know, and just you know what I have always loved to do. And you know, you you sort of learn things as you get older. And you know, you know the old old expression: "Youth is wasted on the young." You know, sure. you, you know, you learn, you begin to learn what your, what your talents are. You know, I have this philosophy that everybody has talent on this God, God's earth. Um, again, I don't mean any religious, but it's just an expression. Um, and figure out, you know, everybody, whether it's a carpenter or a janitor or a doctor or a musician, you know, uh, a supply chain expert, a podcaster, sure. we all have talent and figuring out what that is, is part of life's mission. And then if that talent is also can be a passion of yours or something you really like, you know, then that becomes like the most fulfilling thing you can do. And then you, you want to master it, right? Like anything, like a great musician, like a great politician, like a great doctor, like a great actor. If you can figure out what that is and it resonates with you and fulfills you, you want to spend time mastering it and developing mastery. So wow. I kind of figured out, you know, later what it is. And what it is for me is essentially you know, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a market intuitive by nature. I tend to see trends, you know, earlier than most people. Again, humbly as I can say it, there are lots of things I'm not good at. Um, but, uh, um, and, you know, if they resonate with me, I, I, I look for the barriers or the or an accelerant 
I, I am, and it's always been tech, and and just being able to create something from the ether, you know, from the from the gases, uh, <laughs> wherever they are, whatever's out there floating around, sure, um, and see and see people or consumers or businesses begin to use it and change behavior and make a difference, you know, in their lives in some way. It's just so fulfilling and so exciting for me, and I've been doing it my whole life. Um, and it's what I love to do. I um, love that. You know, I, I haven't been, I, well, I haven't always been successful, but it's what I love to do. Um, uh, so, uh, I'll stop for a minute. Cause so you want to get to how great. I get the forager. <laughs> that's know, exactly I'm right. I love it. And, uh, I mean, you got such great advice. I mean, I always wait till the end to ask like, what would be a couple pieces of advice you'd offer? And you just nailed one right there in terms of, I think, lining up your passion with, um, you know, how you spend your time and, and where you dedicate your, your time and hours. If you can find that good mix of like work, company, you know, investment with your passion, I just think that's uh, amazing. And you've been able to do that. But let me, um, or and let me tr- transition a bit to Forager. I want to make sure we talk about that today. And um, and yeah, we will definitely schedule more time to dive into some of those um, sidebar topics. But um, this is interesting. So when I, you know, I'd done, again, looked at your background and some companies you've worked with, whatnot. And then I saw Forager and I was like, I'm trying to figure out like the angle here um, and how you decided to, to start this company. What I love about it is squarely in the consumer goods, retail space, grocery space. And you're, I almost sensed that you were trying to create a almost a, a platform for connecting buyers, suppliers, and, and whatnot. And so I'm curious to hear, like, how did you have this idea, and like, what got this started? Yeah. So keep me honest, because I don't want to go over no, your, your time. But we're good. Um, so the backstory on this is so after cash star five and a half years, I was burnt. I mean, completely burnt. Um, and uh, uh, you know, I took some downtime, um, but then I decided at you know the age of how old was I? I think I was fifty eight, fifty seven. I don't remember now. Um, I decided to take an around the world, you know, walkabout, quote unquote, by myself for seventy nine days, um, um, just to kind of you know, uh, I mean, I, 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 I created a blog at, at at that stage of my life. I didn't you know didn't know how to blog, but but you know, and I called myself you know recovering CEO, <laughs> discoverer, scout. Um, it was really a trip to just you know I'd worked for thirty years straight. Um, raised five kids, moved a number of times, and I just really felt it was time. Um, so I traveled 37,431 miles, wow. countries, wow. Um, and uh, five continents or four or five continents. Um, and, you know, I mostly stayed, I didn't have a full itinerary other than, you know, I had to be in certain places for air frequent fire. And I only traveled with one suitcase. I didn't check it for the end. <laughs> Um, so when I had to buy gifts for my family, but, but I stayed 60% of the time with friends, acquaintances, friends of friends, you know, so I could see the world through their eyes, as opposed to as a tourist, you know, I wanted to be a traveler, not a tourist, as the the, saying goes, um, uh, you know, the difference between, uh, it's it's an expression, the difference between a tourist and a traveler is a tourist doesn't know where they've been. And the traveler doesn't know where they're going. So I was oh, wondering, I just, you know, sitting in train stations, watching people, um, you know, going out to dinner somewhere and with a book or kind of picking up a conversation. You know, I wasn't in a rush. It was the first time in my life where I could just slow down 
And on that trip, I said to myself, you know, I've got enough money. I'm not driving Ferraris and yachts, but I, and I'm, I'm comfortable, right? And I have five kids, and I felt it was time for me to take my quote-unquote talent and put it into something that was really going to make an impact. Um, and I know that term has become hackneyed and overused, but, you know, it was really heartfelt. And, you know, so I began thinking, and I also began seeing, you know, as I traveled from country to country, how people were buying and consuming their food from place to place. Um, and, you know, began thinking about how we've been abusing um, and destroying our planet, literally, uh, by, you know, food and agriculture, biggest industry in the world, right? Um, Absolutely. Six trillion dollars, I think. I think it's six trillion, maybe even bigger. And it has the biggest impact on our environment. I mean, people debate it, but it does account for about a third of our CO2. We can, we can spend more time talking about why, but, but, you know, a big part of that is the shipping and palleting and reshipping and cold storage and shrink wrapping and on and on and on when, you know, when we, you know, these big commodity farms where we get our food from, obviously they're important. And then, you know, and then definitely our healthcare systems, um, you know, in America, we have 110 million people that are uh, pre-diabetic or obese, cost the country $3 trillion. And now, and obviously COVID, it's become even more acute because these folks that have high comorbidities and obviously uh, uh, communities of color or, or, or economic uh, poverty are also suffering badly. But you know, what we put in our bodies is so critical. Um, sure. And uh, and then from a socioeconomic standpoint, you know, eight, roughly eight companies. You know, and you've got one down there, Coca Cola. Um, eight companies totally. control uh, about eighty percent of the food food we consume. We consume, um, and you know, you know, many of them are trying to right the ship. But you know, the, the truth be known is. You know, their businesses, you know, our, our agriculture systems and our food processing systems were built at, you know, in the wake of World War II, you know, for mass transit and mass shipping and scaling. And, you know, there's a ton of packaging and processing. And, and then we don't even measure, you know, there's no way to measure all the pesticides and nitrogens that flow into our waterways. Um, and it's just, you know, it's just, it's just bad. And then on average, we, you know, again, high big generalization here, but on average, we export 95% of what we produce, and we import 95% of what we produce in every state in this country. Interesting. Obviously, it varies by state. And it is, so it just doesn't make any sense. Um, and then on top of that, with my five kids as a market intuitive and my wife and friends, I just began to notice a shift of what they were eating. I mean, you know, it was their plates became more veg. And now, right. I, now I told my kids are vegans. Um, they would go out of their ways to the farmer's markets. They would, you know, go shop local, shop local. And I just said, hey, there's something here. Um, and so I started doing some research and, you know, and started thinking and talking to farmers and the grocers and began to realize that, you know, there's a lot of demand for local, but it's really hard to do. Um, it's really hard to make it work. You know, it's much easier to work with a conventional distributor, conventional big industry, you know, big agricultural farms, you know, commodity farms, as we like to call them, corn, soybeans, you know, again, important, but, but, you know, but not really environmentally friendly. So uh, I began to look at this problem. I got some grants from the state, a little different than a typical entrepreneur, put some of my own money in and, you know, realized that, uh, you know, fairly early on that. You know, uh, if I want to, if I'm a grocer or a restaurant or an institution, um, we're mostly focused on grocers, um, that, you know, if I want to buy local food to stuff myself, it's really hard to do it. It's very difficult. 
And sure. therefore, most people won't do it, or they'll just do it sort of, you know, symbolically so they can claim they have a few <laughs> they have a place in right. store. That's so true. Right, or they'll have a little cart with a couple pieces of butternut squash and, you know, <laughs> some, you know with a scarecrow and a piece of corn. Um, you know, um, and so... <laughs> so, uh, you know, so I began looking at it and it became very clear to me that, you know, for those folks that were sourcing locally, you know, more neighborhood stores, more food co-ops, more health food stores, and some innovative retailers like Whole Foods and, um, you know, down your neck of the woods, I'm trying to think of some of the more innovative groceries down your way. Um, I'd have to, I'd have to spend a little more time thinking about that because there's, there's so many great regional grocers sure. uh, that are doing more innovative things um, that are creating these sprouts, Lidl, uh, right? Uh, exactly. You know those kind of right. not the right. mainstream. Yep. Yeah. So, but 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 basically, if I if I'm a grocer and I'm and I want to buy from independent farms and artisanal suppliers, cheesemakers, meat meat producers, you know, TPG honey, tortillas, coffee, chocolate. You know, we have all this stuff, right? Um, you know, there's not any systems, you know, I, it, you know, it's much easier for me to call up my gal or, or guy at my distributor, or my mainline distributor, or if they have an online platform now to go on and do all my ordering and throw in a few organic products, or maybe they'll have a few local products and then I'm done. Right. I mean, it could be better. Right. But if I'm working with, you know, 20 or 30 farms, you know, outside of, you know, upstate from Atlanta, um, you know, uh, I forget what that region is. I've been there. That's, uh, so beautiful. Um, I've been up there. What's it called? The Appalachian area? Sort of up. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Uh, but there's one area up there that's, you know, kind of more upscale and pretty beautiful. I've been there to some resort there a couple of times. Um, but, you know, if I want to buy some small farms, first of all, I have to find them. Right. And secondly, how do I order from them? Right. So most people that buy from small farms, particularly so the company, and we have, we have customers that you know, have 182 local suppliers that they buy from. Wow. Okay. Wow. Uh, you know, it's phone calls, it's texts, it's emails, it's chasing it. Totally. You know, there's just, it, it's just a mess. It's, there's no system. So unless you're going to have higher staff and really go out of your way to do it, like Whole Foods again, who I love and I hate, and, and we, did a, we <laughs> right. did a pilot with them. Um, well, there's reasons for that because of Amazon and it's on right. all the podcasts on that too, but <laughs> <laughs> got a whole list here. <laughs> well, and I actually know Amazon really well from my days at Castar, um, but, but and, and, and Apple and Starbucks and Facebook, wow. who I all did deals <laughs> with except for Amazon, Amazon, I could never get a deal done with. But anyway, so if I want to really work with small farms, it requires a lot of, you know, Whole Foods had a forager in every store okay, that was responsible for going out and they could have spent the money to do it. And even they didn't do a great job, but they did a better job than most. So, you know, most okay. people don't do it or if they did it, they did it sort of poorly or, you know, or had a, put a lot of people, you know, had a lot of staff and, and expense to do it. So I said, look, you know, we're in the digital age. They're using pen and paper and telephones and chasing farms. It's just, not going to scale. And there's no data. You know, you have no data. There's no systems. You don't know what you're buying and what you're selling. Totally. Um, which is crazy in this day and age. There's no, in the fresh local supply chain, so you're a supply chain guy, right? I have never seen, and I'm not a supply chain expert, but I have worked in some pretty, uh, pretty big, interesting tech companies sure. where supply chain was a real big part of it. 
Um, I've never seen a more complicated supply chain in, than anything in the local oh, yeah. fresh category. Well, I mean, you've got so many variables. Yeah, um, I think the system... Yeah, the system is not... No, the system is not set up for the small producer, right? I mean, and, and the mainstream chain grocers, I mean, they, they go through specific large distributors, right? And so I think what you're doing is providing a good a marketplace for the local food buyer and the local food producer. That's right. That's right. But first and foremost, because we get, we, and, and you know, when I go out and talk to VCs initially, everybody's like, oh, you're a marketplace, you're a marketplace. Right. Um, and I, you may have a question on this, but I didn't start as a marketplace and we debated this heavily. And there were three or four companies that tried to do what we did, mainly in the restaurant category, and they all failed because they started as marketplaces and you get the chicken and egg. Um, so I started focusing on retailers that already were working in the local food economy and basically digitizing an analog process that, you know, was grossly inefficient. Got it. Um, and, and, and that was the entry into the market. And, and that was, you know, we're still early. We still have a long way to go. This is, as I tell, you know, investors and impact investors, this is a long horizon project. This isn't, you know, this, there's no simple flywheel, you know, we, sure. you know, some businesses, you know, they have a flywheel, like, you know, that can get them to the next level really quickly. There's no flywheel. We're talking about micro, you know, micro economies, micro locations, small communities, big communities. It, there's no simple way to build this thing, you know, right away. So it's it. a painstaking, very, uh, but, but anyway, back to what you were saying and, uh, is, you know, it's, it's a lot more work and a lot more difficult sure. um, to do it. So most people won't do it. However, now, finally, you know, having started this thing six years ago, finally now more and more grocers and others, we actually work with the hospital, we work with the main Department of Corrections now, um, we, more and more grocers are starting to realize that the demand, and we just did a huge survey and the numbers are off the charts, uh, more and more consumers want to eat healthy, fresh, local food more than ever. It's wow. the number one product consumers want now. Um, and they will switch grocers, or drive you know, 20, 30 miles to get it. I mean, it's, it's incredible. And COVID has made it even stronger I'm sure. because the sense of I'm home, I want to feed my family quality food, I want my immune system to be you know, stronger. Um, it's, just, it's just, and then the last thing, which is you know, really important, right? So in this pandemic age, and who knows how long we're going to be in it, depending on which pundit you, you or doctor you <laughs> listen to, you know, uh, it was, this was already happening anyway, you know, with the Amazon, but, but, you know, why do you need to go into the grocery? I mean, obviously if you live in a, in a, you know, in a food desert where you can't get your food delivered, that's one thing. And, and, and that's an issue. There are a lot of food deserts in the United States now. And that's a, you know, the food justice work we do is a whole other topic, but uh, I don't want to get off topic there. We do a bunch of work in the food justice category. In fact, the New York times covered us, uh, covered a little bit about us for the work we're doing with the Indian nations and, Colorado, but that's again another topic. So, so you know, why? Why I'm in my sixties. I mean, I'm obviously an entrepreneur, but why do? Why would I go to the grocery store anymore? I mean, I can buy anything right. online. Just have I can have it delivered to my house by Whole Foods. The, the the prices a third of the time for like staples like Saran Wrap. I mean, I check it. Um, are, are the same price as Walmart, and they deliver it. Um, and or I can go pick it up a curbside at Walmart. I'm, you know, I don't shop at Walmart, but you know. I, I could. I yep. could pick it up a curbside. Why do I need to go in there? 
So, you know, the grocers have all of this space. I mean, I know there's, it's come back a bit and that's great because um, we certainly want to support our, 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 our retail economy. But, but you know, still shopper visits are down. People are spending a lot of time in the store. Totally. So, you know, they have all this square footage and you have, you know, are you familiar with Wegmans at all? Oh, of course. Down that yep, way or absolutely. Not? There was an article with Bob Wegman in the Wall Street Journal, you know, early days of the pandemic. And he's basically, you know, decrying, like, I built all of these stores for in-store experience, right? right. Salad bars, <laughs> bars, coffee bars, soup bars. What am I going to do, right? right? How, you know, I have all this square footage. So we, we believe one of the only ways you're going to get people back into the store, you know, particularly older people that are a little more scared, is by giving them a reason. And people that want to buy fresh produce are more likely to go into a store to look at the produce, feel it, touch it, squeeze it, smell it, you know, than 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 buying it online. It's Absolutely. One of the categories that that people will really and, and I'll tell you honestly, I get food delivered from Whole Foods, you know, regularly. I you know, I, I'm ashamed of it a little bit, but I do, um, because of the convenience. Um, but you know, 30, 40 percent of the time, you know, when I get the peaches in the bag, the, those Georgia peaches, <laughs> right? They're 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 bruised and they're fresh. Uh, no. rotten, rotten. See, I like I mean, going to the right? store. I like to pick out, you know, the the right avocado. Anyway, you know what I mean. So, right, um, exactly. Oh, you've got. I mean, this is it's amazing. Um, a really cool idea. What's the revenue model like when you think about this? Uh, from a growth perspective and investor perspective, what's the revenue model for Forager? Yeah, it's it's very straightforward. We just take a small markup. Got right? it. Okay. So anybody, anything that goes through our platform, we tap like you know, like a distributor or broker. We just tap like on a very small markup. That's it. We make it really simple. That's awesome. And then how you know when you, you when you initially started and you talked about the chicken or the egg, like were there some early adopters in, that helped get the platform going? I'll, I'll call it a platform, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a really good question, Justin. <clears throat> I mean, you know, with the chicken and egg thing, is it are you, are you making souffle or you're making scrambled eggs now? <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, you know, I, again, I was very methodical. I, I spent a lot of time talking to farms, and and I started here in Maine, which is you know like some like it's a trend. You know, we started a thousand new farms here um, in the last ten years, um, wow. and the majority by people forty or under, and forty percent by women. Um, Interesting. So it, wow. You know, it's uh, these are these are you know these are people that it's a trend. Uh, I mean, it's certainly not easy that want to return back to the land, that want to raise their families and, you know, um, and, 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 and be at home and just have a different quality of life and some stressful in New York City or, you know, down, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, Atlanta, you know, uh, uh, urban, you know, corporate park, uh, you know, office, Home Depot office or something. Um, so, uh, so uh, you know, I started with three retailers uh, that I got to know. One was a, you know, a natural, one was like a, a neighborhood seven store retailer. Another was a food co-op and another was a health food store and 20 farms. And we just all got together and, you know, planned it out as a, as a group to try to collectively solve these problems jointly. And they became stakeholders. And, you know, uh, it's, it's another lesson for a startup. If you can get, you know, you know, your customers and stakeholders involved in your product development process really early on. Sure. Now, often, one of the big failures of, of entrepreneurs is they will say, "Oh, I've got this brilliant product idea," and you know, and they're often a tech entrepreneur, and they'll build this really cool product. But 
they'll never spend enough time bringing the customer into the product development process. Wow. Um, and lo and behold, they'll fail. You know, totally. I mean, 99% of startups all fail. So we, you know, did it, you know, with them um, and got a ton of their input along the way and tested with them and worked with them and, you know, um, and, you know, and they became our partners. And, uh, you know, uh, two of the three grocers became paying customers and most of the farms are still with us. Wow. So we started, a, you know, and I proved the model here in Maine. I spent a lot of time working on it. Um, and figuring it out. Um, and then, you know, we expanded, um, and decided to take it, uh, to other states. Um, and we've, uh, you know, we've been growing, um, quite a bit. COVID did put us on our backs a bit, but now it seems like things are really coming back. Um, and we're now operating in nine or 10 states. Um, and, uh, you know, we've sold, uh, several, you know, 150,000 local products through our system. Um, we have about four or 500 uh, farms on our platform now. Wow. Um, and we work with 30, 30, 30, more than 30 grocers. Um, as I said, nine, 10 states. More to come. Um, hopefully we'll get down to your neck of the woods. Yes, <laughs> please. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, yeah. That's and amazing. A great, passionate group of people that, you know, really believe in what we're doing. Um, a great set of investors and, you know, uh, uh, and a lot of uh, a lot of fans and advocates. Totally, uh, because you know they really care. Everybody's really passionate. That uh, this is awesome, um, David. Share with our audience where they can learn more about Forger, how they can connect with you and the company, how they can schedule a demo uh, and whatnot. Yeah, so just you know, the website is pretty straightforward. It's goforager.com dot com or you know www.goforager.com. dot <laughs> com. Um, you can obviously follow us on Twitter at Go Forager. You can connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, it's David Douglas Stone is my full name. Um, I, you know, I, I have a Twitter account, but I don't use it as much <laughs> as I used to because of the political age we're in. It's been abused, but I do have a Twitter account um, uh, as well. It's uh, at David Stone, CEO, but mainly www.goforager.com yep. and, and my LinkedIn profile are probably the best places to do it. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I encourage your listeners to, you know, now more than ever, um, you know, focus on the future, you know, our, our environmental impact. Also, you know, what you put in your bodies, um, is so important to your health and, 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 and your immune system. Um, and, you know, how you feed and, and, you know, how you treat your land and respect the land we live on, um, you know, is so important for future generations. Um, you know, we, we need to be renewing our soils, rebuilding our soils, rebuilding our local food system. It's, it's, I can't stress, you know, it's not just because it's my business. It's, it's, I can't stress how important this is and how much more important it's becoming. And I'll end with one more thing. You know, when I started this company, we, you know, we would get a couple of intern applications every summer. We now get 200, 300 intern applications every summer. And we're a small company. That says something. We're only eight people. Wow. And I, you know, I, and these kids, I mean, I have them on video because they're, they, they are so full of purpose and passion around, you know, this sector of, you know, the, the sort of the, these forces, these vectors of sustainability, environment, local community, all coming together. These, this generation Z, and I have one daughter, you know, is, uh, do you have any, do you have any kids? Justin? Yep, two, age 20 and 22. How old are they? Yep, 20 and 22. All right, so they're. 
Right, so you know, so they're like a Gen, oh, uh, yeah. Gen Z. There's Gen Z. <laughs> and they, they, <laughs> totally. they're so, I mean, my daughter, my daughter, I can't say anything anymore. I'm so politically incorrect, right? But, <laughs> uh, you know, these kids are so incredibly passionate about this stuff. I, I You know, it's another, I want to write a, a, an article about what I call the passion quotient, mm. which is for startups. I've never seen some, maybe sports was similar, but there, I've never seen so much passion around this sector that I have uh, in any, any business I've been in. in That's my a big life. idea. I mean, it is, uh, it is, it is just these, these kids, I mean, God bless them. You know, I mean, you have two daughters and you understand it. And um, I mean, they are just headstrong and, um, and, and, you know, want to change the world. And I love it. I really love it. I totally agree. Well, um, I just, Thank you again for spending this time with us. I mean, what really great stories from your career, but also like great advice. I mean, I, I just for those listening that whether you're looking to start your own thing um, or the, the elements around persistence um, or you're at a big company and looking to, to jump and doing something like this. I mean, like there's so much to it. And, and David, I hope you'll come back. I mean, we listed a whole bunch of things we could talk about in other episodes, and I'd love to also unpack some of your biggest lessons learned in a follow-up. But uh, thanks for coming on. Uh, Justin, thank you. You're a great interviewer, and I love, I love your podcast, and I, I love your sort of energy, and I can see you smiling through. The, <laughs> I can hear you smiling <laughs> so through good. my headphones here. It's so good. So, you know, I hope your viewers will demand from their grocers to buy more local and support I our local it. farms. Um, and if you have any retailers that listen or CPG companies that are on this, you know, we oh, do yeah. We have ingredients. <laughs> we do some ingredient sourcing too. Wow. Uh, CPG companies that want to do local, you know, Quaker Oats is doing a lot of work sourcing regenerative from regenerative farms. So if you have CPG people, tell them to reach out to us. Oh, totally. Yeah, that's that's definitely something we can I can I can definitely make some referrals there. But thank you so much for coming on. The Contender Cast is sponsored by Henderson Shapiro Peck and powered by Contender Brands. You can download additional ContenderCast episodes directly via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, iHeartMedia, YouTube, and other preferred podcast platforms. If you would like to be a guest on the ContenderCast, connect with us at ContenderCast.com. This is Brian Benson reminding you that every winner started as a contender. 